Welcome to episode 227 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and I'm catching up with James R. Ben to talk about Road of Bones, the 16th and latest installment in his Billy Boyle series of World War II Mysteries, which was published by Soho Press on September 7th, 2021. Thanks for taking the time to join the podcast yet again. Oh, thank you, Nancy. I'm happy to chat with you anytime. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. Um, the titles of your books are always so great. And this one is no different. We talked about it last year when we talked about your previous book. So explain where the title Road of Bones came from. I will. and But first, I just want to say that I, I attach maybe more importance to the title uh, than some authors uh, it's important to me at the beginning of the story to have a title that's evocative of the theme. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that uh, before I get going. And uh, for this story, uh, as soon as I stumbled upon this, I knew it was a title to keep. So Road of Bones is a real road. Um, in the 1930s, Joseph Stalin uh, decided he wanted a road from a Pacific port city uh, into the interior. Uh, and this is just south of Siberia and the Arctic Circle. Uh, he had a convenient labor pool uh, in that area of hundreds of thousands of political prisoners who had been sentenced to what later became called the Gulag, uh, the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, that term was not yet in use, but that's what it was. Uh, so these were prison camps in, uh, in severe weather conditions. Uh, and he had those political prisoners start building his road. It is about a thousand kilometers. It goes inland, uh, just south of uh, Siberia. Uh, and the conditions were so harsh and so terrible that estimates are, and they didn't keep records. So it's, these are only estimates between a quarter million and a million prisoners died building this road. They were equipped with basic, you know, pickaxes and shovels. Uh, they were the excavators. And with kind of a ruthless efficiency, since they were digging in the permafrost, as all these prisoners died, uh, it would have taken resources away from the building of the road to bury them. So they buried them in the roadbed and where they died and just put rocks over them and, and kept on building the road. So there are several hundred skeletons per kilometer in this road. The bones still today, because this road is, still exists and is uh, partially a dirt road, uh, rise up uh, from the dirt. The prisoners quickly, they named it the road of bones because they knew what was happening there. Uh, so since this book takes place in the Soviet Union, uh, that seemed to be uh, a good reminder to me of what the environment was like uh, that I was writing about, particularly for the Soviet citizens, Russians and others who uh, were part of the story. Billy's work uh, so far hasn't been involved with the Eastern Front of World War II. Uh, but now that he's now he's involved investigating a case uh, of murder in the USSR, one American, one 
Soviet citizen. And I kept thinking as I read Rota Bones that with allies like the Soviet Union, who needs enemies? Yeah, really. Uh, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that was about the best you could say. Uh, now, it's true that the Soviets uh, took the lion's share of casualties in this war. It, it was a horrible war. And there were many, many uh, soldiers who fought uh, genuinely for their homeland. Uh, I guess the invader, uh, the, and it changed as they then became the invader later in the war, they took over that role. But uh, that was something I, I wanted to find a middle ground uh, about is to tell the story of the kind of selfless um, struggle of some of the uh, Soviet soldiers, men and women, uh, who really were willing to die for their homeland, even as their homeland was willing to have them die for it. Uh, so I wanted to show both sides. And, and I, I remember at some point I had to have Billy stop and think about the people he'd met as he was leaving uh, because he, without going into a lot of plot detail, he kind of soured on the whole situation. Uh, but then he reminded himself, well, you remember so-and-so and so-and-so, they were good people. Um, but it was kind of hard to remember that during this writing. To get to the USSR, uh, Billy takes a particularly harrowing journey on a B-17 bomber, making a run over Germany, a bombing run, and with the eventual destination of an airbase in Poltava, Ukraine, because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union mm -hmm. at that point. And it's not an understatement to say that trust is thin on the ground once mm -hmm. he arrives. And what struck me was how you wrote about Stalin's influence being all pervasive mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that people don't just follow his orders, but they anticipate them, they, they, they overthink them. And they, in trying to please this, this crazy tyrant, mm -hmm. uh, it's as if everyone is always asking themselves, what would Joe want? And it must have been exhausting for the population because it could be so counterproductive. And I thought you did an excellent job uh, doing that with the, sort of the back and forthing of, of the orders that Billy was receiving, these, these counterintuitive and often contradictory orders that Billy would be receiving from whoever is running. He doesn't know if the Colonel is running the base or the guy sitting in the corner that's from, you know, the predecessor of the KGB. So talk a little bit about how these things were organized. Uh, well, yeah, people have, several people have asked me, you know, uh, after reading this, who was worse, the, the Nazis or the communists? And, uh, or which was the more totalitarian state. And, uh, you know, it's it's not a beauty contest. They were both horrible. Uh, but there's something about Stalin's Russia, and you hit on it when you said people trying to anticipate. It was as if Stalin was right in the next room for a, a lot of people. That's, that's doing research for this. That's how it came across, that uh, he was such a pervasive influence on a personal level um, that, that people literally did try to anticipate what he, as, as if he were in the next room listening 
would want. And it created a, a paralysis. Uh, that was part of the problem when the Germans invaded because Stalin had said so often, oh no, they're not going to invade us. You know, we have a treaty, I, I trust Hitler. So when the Germans started pouring over the border, there was this crisis of uh, what, what am I supposed to do? If I fight back, am I uh, disobeying an order from Stalin? Uh, he's the man of steel. That's what Stalin means. Uh, so it, in a way, he got a lot done because he could snap his fingers and the whole nation would snap too. But if, if the snap didn't go off right, people would say, well, wait, wait, what should we do? You know, did I hear that finger snap or not? Um, so it, it was uh, overall a very negative influence and they, they wasted so many people sending them uh, to these prison camps uh, on, a, on a whim uh, just to create terror. You could be the most loyal officer uh, and you'd get sent to the Gulag for 10 years just to, to get everybody uh, so frightened of Stalin that they would never think of acting against him. So uh, it's, it must be crazy making, but people found a way and some of it was through Stalin worship. Yeah, he could do no wrong. He was the, the great father uh, in Moscow. Uh, that's how a lot of people stole, not a lot, some people uh, in, in Russia still feel about him. And as if the B-17 flight wasn't harrowing enough, uh, Billy needs uh, to, he needs to find some of his compatriots that were shot down and uh, parachuted out of a, out of a um, disabled plane over Soviet territory. So <clears throat> this involved flying with the night witches and you, you mentioned them last year when we talked about last year's book. And I think you, you need to talk more about the night witches. <laughs> well, it's an incredible story. Uh, you know, in, in the Soviet Union, there was no personal property. So people could not own an airplane or a car or a tractor. The state owned everything, uh, which meant that they, while they wanted to encourage uh, the training of pilots, uh, they set up uh, uh, aircraft schools uh, flight schools all across the Soviet Union. So anybody um, with enough technical knowledge could apply to a flight school and be trained as a pilot. And it was open to women to a much greater extent uh, than it would have been in the US for instance. So there was a, a cadre of trained uh, women pilots when the war broke out. And one woman has name escapes me at the moment, uh, had Stalin's ear and she attended some sort of meeting where he was at and asked him if she could have permission to uh, recruit a regiment of women pilots to fight. And the Soviets used women in combat roles uh, as, as in the infantry, there were battalions of women, a lot of famous snipers uh, were women. Uh, and Stalin gave his permission and what was unique about, uh, now the night witches were one third of this group. So there was, uh, they, they call them regiments, but it's really like a squadron. There was a bomber squadron of women, a fighter squadron, and then the night bomber squadron that became known as the night witches. Uh, and what was unique about them was that everybody was a woman. The mechanics, the cooks, the drivers, the pilots, the commanders, they were all women. And I don't think that's ever happened in the history of warfare before. Now, I haven't been able to find any examples. Uh, so in any case, uh, 
the uh, the night witches got their name through because of their missions. They flew uh, really old biplanes, open cockpit biplanes, no instrumentation at all, uh, and they would bomb uh, German installations at night. Uh, it was more harassment. I mean, they they carried very small bomb loads. Uh, they had a very short range, and the idea was to keep the Germans awake at night and nervous and, and always looking to the sky because their technique was to fly very low, cut their engines, and glide over the, the Germans until they saw their target and then drop their bombs and start up their engines. And the, uh, you know, biplanes have these struts with uh, wires connecting them, and the only sound the Germans would hear would be this thrumming in the night of the, the, wire, the wind through the wires on the biplanes. And it sounded to them like witches on a broom. So they started calling them Nachthexen, night witches. And as soon as the, uh, uh, the pilots heard about this, they adopted it as, as their own name because it's a pretty cool name. Uh, and uh, as I said, there was no instrumentation. There was no, these gas tanks would explode with one hit. There was a navigator in a, in a seat behind the pilot whose job it was to, by dead reckoning, like looking at the moonlight on a river, uh, guide their pilot to the target. And they were uh, equipped with flares that they would drop down over the target, which meant that the whole aircraft was a one combustible nightmare. Uh, so a lot of them just were hit and uh, burned alive. Uh, the women were armed with pistols, uh, not so much to defend themselves uh, if they were shot down, but to kill themselves because um, suicide was preferable to what the, the German men would, would do to them if they were captured. Um, so it was a pretty tough group of women. And uh, I really wanted Billy to, to get in that aircraft. And uh, I had to figure out a way. So in this story, they're sort of behind the lines uh, far behind the lines and there's one uh, woman with her aircraft and Billy just needs a ride somewhere. So he gets to ride in the navigator's seat during daylight, but of course they get diverted and he ends up uh, on a mission with them. But it was the only way I could really show kind of viscerally uh, what that experience might've been like. Well, this brings me to another part of your book. And, and I have to mention, because I am a, a little bit obsessed with the idea of maps and cartography. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite books of all time is The Island of Lost Maps by Miles Harvey. Yeah. And uh, which intersperses through the whole book, the history of maps um, and the sacred, you know, this, almost the sacred power of a map. And when Billy is there, um, he finds out that Mike is, is in this other part of the Soviet Union and he wants a map. Pretty normal he, thing, huh? A, a normal thing like uh, in the United States, you can go get, even in 1944, you could go get a, buy it at the mobile station mm -hmm. or a penny or a nickel, whatever it was, a map. Uh, and, uh, Maps were very, very hard to come by. Uh, and uh, I think that's something you should talk about because, you know, obviously he gets to see a map when he's about to go off with the night witches, you know, he sees a map hmm. and he realizes 
there are no maps. Maps are secret. So I, I think if only because I'm interested in that, <laughs> I'd like you to talk about that in relationship to the book. Well, I, I'm interested in maps as well. And I couldn't not put that little piece in because if you recall, they go to a state bookstore at yes. some point um, and they are, there are no maps because maps tell the truth. Uh, and if a, a foreigner who is probably a spy in uh, Soviet reasoning uh, got a hold of a street map, he might be able to meet somebody, find somebody. So maps were, were, not, were not allowed. Um, you could not buy a map uh, at a state-run bookstore, and there were no other bookstores. That was it. Uh, so it was another case of how far down the tentacles of control uh, reached in the Soviet Union that you could not even find a street map of your own city uh, because what use would that be to anybody but a spy? I mean, that's how they viewed the, the entire world around them. Uh, so I, I, I had to include that and I had to include Kaz, who's a, you know, a very cosmopolitan intellectual going into that bookstore with its, its lack of uh, truthful resources and just have him react to that. The idea of, uh, because it's not just the street map, but also the topographical maps. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Billy knows where he is because he saw a map before he left. Yes. Says, okay, that's where we're going. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, we have to fly over that. You know, we have to yes. fly over Germany to get there. Um, and, you know, he has to sort of recollect where he is. And I guess, I guess the entire population was a bit in a muddle because without a map you don't know where you are and i think that's like a metaphor as well as reality yeah right because your village or your town was your universe and you probably didn't know much beyond that especially if you were in some of these small villages that the, the war swept across how would you know where to go uh, you know people escaped into the forest into the woods and became partisans in some cases. But yeah, there was literally nowhere to go and no system of transportation to take you there. Very few trains in the Soviet Union. Uh, so yeah, it was a very, I think they created a very isolated culture, which was perfect for them to uh, cut down on any kind of organized resistance uh, or any challenge to Stalin's power. So by the time we get to Road of Bones, the, the war, as far as the, the duration of the active war is winding down and it's, it's becoming... oh, Nancy, don't say that. There's so much war left. Oh, there's no, no, let me, let me, I'm, I, I know. Let me, yeah. let me finish the question. Okay. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Uh, but it's, it is winding down. It's 1944, correct? In yes. this book. Yep. Um, and it's becoming clear that the allies are jockeying it up to divvy up Europe, mm -hmm. especially the Soviet Union. And it causes some not so subtle tension between Polish Lieutenant Kazmieris, Kaz to his friends, who, is def who are definitely not among the Soviets he encounters on the base in Poltava. There is tension because Kaz is smart enough, as you said, he's worldly, he's well-read, and he understands the politics of Europe, not just in 1944, but the politics of Europe since, I don't know, the 10th century. Mm -hmm that Poland has always been bandied about between powers. It was its own power for a while. 
Germany, Russia, and the Austria-Hungarian Empire, it's, it's always been in play. So I, I think that's something you, you should talk about, that, that the allies were, <laughs> there, there was tension among the allies. Yeah. And, and it really uh, came to play in this book because this whole notion of these bomber bases, American bomber bases in the Soviet Union uh, came from earlier in the war. And the idea, what we offered to them was, we'll bomb German targets on the Eastern Front for you. Uh, and the advantage to us was that it would keep the Germans off kilter. They wouldn't know if a flight of B-17s was gonna turn around and go back to England or continue to the Soviet Union. Once they landed there, they didn't know what the next target would be. They might bomb uh, on the Eastern Front. They might fly to Italy, bomb Romanian oil fields on the way. So it, it was seen as a major advantage for everybody. Uh, but uh, those tensions uh, came into play and the Soviets never uh, took us up on the offer of uh, tactical bombing support for, for their forces. Um, and, and for our part, part of the, the, the subtext of the offer was we want to keep the Russians happy because we want them to help us fight against Japan once we finish with Germany. Uh, and once they realized that the Russians weren't going to do that until it suited them, some of the impetus for uh, this whole notion kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, so the whole uh, Operation Frantic, which was the code name for this whole affair of staging uh, bombers from Russia, uh, really became like an orphan project and it did just fade away as, as the war started to draw to a close. Uh, and it was just mutual distrust on, on all sides, but you know, the Russians are past masters of that kind of uh, paranoid suspicion. Uh, they wouldn't let people off the base. Uh, you know, you see in the book, Billy has to have a special pass to go off base to investigate anything. Uh, and most of the, the soldiers and flyers who were stationed there weren't able to do that. The defense of the base, the Russians were supposed to defend it. And as we see in the book, they did a miserable, non-existent job of doing that because it just they just didn't care. So uh, there were a lot of signals in Operation Frantic of what the post-war world might look like. Uh, and I don't know the extent to which anybody uh, really took a lesson from that. Well, you do introduce something that I've always been uh, interested in, and that is the role of the Middle East mm -hmm. in World War II. They weren't really active in it, uh, but Tehran was very convenient. Right, yeah, yeah. on the, the border, yeah. For the Mediterranean uh, theater and for, you know, it's like it's like if Tehran in that time didn't exist, they would have to invent it. Right, yeah. A place where everybody, people could come together in a semi-neutral state because uh, Iran was occupied. Uh, they, they didn't have any choice uh, in the matter. Um, so they weren't exactly neutral, but they were not a belligerent. Uh, and uh, as soon as I saw the story going in that direction and knew we would head down there, I thought, well, I could have never predicted this. I, I would <laughs> never have thought that we'd be in this. Uh, and the, the, the uh, base on the, uh, on the ocean, that they, uh, on the Indian Ocean that they come to at the end was a truly miserable, that was like one of the worst places to be stationed in World War II. Unless, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, if, if, if you thought Bataan was bad. In right there. <laughs> 
<laughs> you needed to go to this space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think one of the things that that brought really brought home to me uh, is when they called it a world war. It was a world war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every nation that that would give the slightest advantage to one of the belligerents got drawn in, uh, and that's how interestingly that's how we got uh, the Shah. Right. Uh, we, we, you know, he was a young kid then, and we propped him up, and that, that didn't work out too well. So even to this day, you can see the reverberations of some of the, the decisions that were made. And probably at the time, it was like, oh, this is the quickest way to get this done. So let's, let's depose so-and-so and put this kid in. You know, he, he speaks good English, so, you know, he'll do. He'll, he'll, he's there. He's a yeah, warm yeah, body. yeah. And, and you could argue that a lot of uh, these solutions mm -hmm. had their um, had their foundations in World War One. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but we can we could wonk out on this for a long time, and yeah. you yeah. would outwonk me <laughs> by a mile. I believe this is the fourth time that speaking of mysteries has been fortunate to have you on the podcast. So this is always my concluding question, and it's. It's not just for our listeners and readers of your books, but for me, uh, because I had no idea where the gang is going next. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about oh, sure. the next installment. Well, I, I'll, I'll start with the title because as we started off, uh, titles are very important to me. The title of next year's book is Shadows. And I take that from, do you happen to know uh, the song that Leonard Cohen made famous, the partisan song? I probably do because I'm, yeah. I'm from Montreal. I just, yeah. I'm not. Oh, well, uh, yeah. So just uh, Google it. It's on YouTube. Uh, Leonard Cohen made it famous. Um, and it's a song that was actually commissioned by the Free French government uh, during the war. And it was the, the early French version was broadcast over uh, the radio from London. And it was meant to boost the spirits of the population at large and the resistance fighters. So it's, it's, it's at one point it was called the Partisan's Lament. Uh, and it's a pretty sad song, and, but it, it has a, a hopeful tune to it. Um, and there's a, it concludes with uh, the partisan who's on the run, uh, he's alone, his compatriots have been killed. And there's a, a chorus that comes back, men will come from the shadows. But it, it also meant to me that coming from the shadows, when you're the only one left, what are you like? So uh, Shadows explores um, the aftermath of a failed rebellion right after D-Day and the Vercors Plateau where uh, some resistance group uh, groups banded together and uh, a little too soon proclaimed a republic, a free French republic in the mountains. Uh, and uh, they thought uh, the allies would land in Southern France the next day, come to their rescue. They were wrong. Uh, they were, the Vercors Republic was uh, crushed by the Germans and there were a lot of recriminations against the allies. So there was a lot of bad blood in Southern France. Uh, so uh, guess where Billy and company are going? They're, they're going to Southern France uh, and their mission is to, uh, now that most of Southern France has been uh, liberated, 
to help the French government uh, find uh, uh, collaborators and uh, members of the fascist uh, militia who have tried to go into hiding. So it seems to be a fairly easy assignment, you know. Uh, but they always things, things, right? yeah, yeah. easy on the face of it. Yeah. And then uh, we end up uh, running into um, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was uh, a group made up of uh, Naisai, Japanese American citizens, who were in the main recruited from the concentration camps from which they had been, uh, uh, when, when they got expelled from the West Coast. Um, and they relocated. ended up- Relocated, yes, yes, to, to lovely swamplands. Yeah, yeah. But you know, they really were concentration camps because the definition is you remove a population and you concentrate it in an area. So the glove fits. Um, they ended up being the most highly decorated unit in the American army. Uh, and at one point they were given the job of rescuing uh, a battalion from another division that had gotten trapped and encircled behind German lines. Uh, so Billy needs to talk to a French uh, guide who's part of working uh, with the 442nd. Uh, so he witnesses their, uh, their sacrifice uh, and they were very badly used. Um, the general who had command over them uh, didn't want his division to get chewed up rescuing his own battalion. So he gave them the assignment. Um, so it's a lot of interesting storylines to follow uh, with that. Um, and I don't know if you've talked with uh, um, or, or read, uh, uh, oh boy, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Naomi Hirohawa. Yes. Clark and Division. Clark and uh, Division. Yeah, it's, which is, it's actually next up on the TBR because- Oh really? Oh, it's, it's a great book and it deals with, you know, some families who were released a little early and, and uh, the effects of being in the camps and, and some of the characters go off to join the 442nd. So she and I have talked about that a lot. Um, and she gave me some, some good tips on, on uh, how to tell the story uh, of those guys. So it's, between those two things, uh, there's so much going on that I decided the next book, which I'm actually gonna start writing in a few weeks, uh, everybody's gonna get leave. They're gonna, they're gonna go, they're really gonna have a rest. They're gonna, all go up to Seton Manor, which is uh, uh, Diana Seton's father's place on the coast of England. Um, everybody's going to be there. Kaz and Angelica, who's you know recovering from Ravensbrook, so everybody's just going to have a restful time. And the working title is "Murder at Seton Manor." <laughs> <laughs> it's, that has a very Christie esque. <laughs> yes, yeah. I don't know if it will survive. Book. It's just it's just a have a title because yeah. But, uh, well, gosh, you've given me reason to live for at least two more years. <laughs> Thank you for that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, I, you know, I think, um, I think, I don't know whether you're going to go into post-war Europe, but boy, things really got interesting in yeah. Germany after 1945. Yeah. Yeah. I think for the 10 years, uh, during the official occupation, and I'm particularly obsessed with Vienna between 45 and 55. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, I, we're thinking about if things ever calm down. It's going to be time for a research trip to Vienna, Prague, Berlin. Oh, you know, the, yeah. the trials 
of the historical <laughs> oh, it's rough, rough. mystery writer. Mm -hmm. But uh, you wear it well. And yes, if things should calm down, uh, I think that that sounds like a fantastic trip. Thanks again, Jim, for talking to me and oh, putting so up my, my lack of knowledge and helping me understand. And I look forward to talking to you next year. Sounds good, Nancy. Thank you.